Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. From the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's most certainly a myth, but it's a good myth and apropos for our reading from St. Matthew's Gospel this morning, and I'm going to tell it anyway. It's said that around 200 years ago, workmen opened the tomb of Emperor Charlemagne in the Aachen Cathedral in Germany. Now, the tomb had been opened several times since Charlemagne's burial, first by Otto III in the year 1000, And that event was described quite vividly by a member of Otto's court there at the scene. He described walking into a vault and seeing the body of the emperor not laying down, but sitting upright on his throne, draped in elaborate kingly garments, a scepter in his hand, and an open Bible on his lap. A grand image of earthly glory and prestige and wealth and power, memorializing a life and rule that had attained nearly all it had aspired to. And so it seemed all in service of Christ and his church. But in this more recent examination of the emperor's famous tomb, so the legend goes, a remarkable detail was registered by the workmen. Resting on the open scriptures was a bony, lifeless hand with a finger outstretched, pointing to a single verse. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Now, no doubt staged by someone clever at some point between these two events, the display made a shrewd point about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. To gain the whole world, it said, comes at a cost. It might cost your own soul. There are, at the end of the day, only two ways to live, according to the Lord Jesus. One is to try to save your life. And we could contemplate the innumerable ways in which people try to do this. But I think Stanley Hauerwas's assessment of our approach to modern medicine pretty well summarizes this approach to life more generally. It's governed by a desperate illusion that we can somehow make it out of this life alive. That we can take everything gained in this life into the life to come. That we can somehow secure now what we have for eternity. Of course we know we can't. That death brings us all to the same place, empty-handed, dispossessed, and naked in our bare humanity. But nevertheless, we grasp at anything and everything from pleasure to fame, security to power to achievements and recognition to try to save our lives from this inevitable ending, knowing full well the futility of doing so. Jesus said it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Now, the second way is just a reversal of the first. Rather than desperately grasping for things to stave off 
the certain loss of our lives to death, this way gives them up right up front. Rather than trying to save our lives only to inevitably lose them to death in the end, this way chooses to begin with death, to begin with dispossession and self-emptying and abandonment to the grace and mercy of God. Instead of forging a life through self-making and achievement and accumulation, this way simply chooses to follow someone else, to be formed into the image of another rather than to construct an image from one's own hands. So two ways to live. One is the way of glory, the other the via crucis, the way of the cross. Both ways, importantly, are toll roads. They cost to travel them. The way of glory, of self-making, of saving life, it collects the toll at the end of the drive, and it bankrupts every traveler. It costs everything. The way of the cross demands that same price, everything, but up front. But precisely because of this, it is a path upon which one travels light, and it leads eternally into the heart of God. The cost of the way of the cross is every bit as severe as the cost of the way of glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously called it the cost of discipleship, a difficult grace. It is a cost that Jesus is now in our gospel asking his disciples to contemplate as he is now making his way to Jerusalem, where he will give that cost himself. He wants them to know what they're getting themselves into, what the future holds, what their affiliation with him means before the dark days begin when the crowd so enthralled now, by his teachings and miracles, will, of course, turn on him when the religious and civic leaders make their move and when the whole world will come crashing down on this new Jesus movement. From that time, Matthew reports, Jesus began to show his disciples that they must, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Peter famously objects to this, but Jesus sets him straight. This path, this cup, this way of the cross is unavoidable for Jesus. This is how the world will be redeemed. But it is just as unavoidable, Jesus knows, for those who follow him, who also must walk in the way of the cross. In fact, that is exactly what he calls them in our reading today and us too. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Now, it's a tremendous gift that we have as modern, western, comfortable, casual readers of Jesus' teachings to persistently render Jesus' sharp and unyieldingly radical words into trite, sentimental garbage. Really, we're quite impressive in doing this, especially when it comes to this verse. We love talking about our various crosses 
we have to bear, our obnoxious neighbors, our long commutes, our chatty coworkers, our frustrated paths of self-fulfillment. We all have some cross to bear, we believe. But no first century person listening to Jesus' command would have heard this as a kind of flowery, evocative metaphor for patiently bearing our various minor inconveniences. The cross was not a symbol of self-sacrifice or Christian belonging or piety, at least not yet. The cross was simply and plainly an instrument of Roman execution for those who trespassed against the state. There could be no mistaking about what Jesus was invoking in the minds of his hearers. What they would have heard is something more like this, probably. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and go to the gallows, meet me there, and follow me. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he is not saying that the cost of discipleship is discomfort or inconvenience or nuisance, or even difficulty. He's saying the cost is death. If you want to follow me, Jesus is telling his disciples, be prepared to die a shameful death by public execution and be prepared for it every day. That's the kind of life Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for. And we know that it is a faith that many of them would share with Jesus. It is the way of the cross. That is the cost of discipleship. Bonhoeffer could not have put it better, I think, than when he said that when, a when Jesus calls a person to follow him, it is an invitation to come and die. How dark, you might be thinking. I thought Jesus was offering me eternal life, not a life of death. Is the way of Jesus really that dismal, that much set against our happiness, our flourishing? Is that what Jesus wants? My death? And the answer to that question is, in part, yes. The reality is that we cannot share in Jesus's life, in his abundance, in the joy and flourishing and blessedness that he promises us unless we first die with him. The life of discipleship begins with death. We know this because we see it every time we march back here and baptize a new Christian in the waters of baptism. That is where life, the Christian life, begins. We are buried with Christ in his death, joined to him in the waters of baptism. So this is the Christian claim then, the way of sin begins in life but ends in death, but the way of the cross begins in death and burial and leads to everlasting life. But we have to die. That's the difficult and stark but wonderful truth. We cannot save our lives. We have to lose them. We have to take up the cross. We have to die. And that means nothing less then giving up everything, our entire existence, over to Jesus, laying every right and privilege and need and prerogative and dream at his feet at the foot of the cross. 
It means dying every single day. Leaving the self of sin and possessiveness and attainment and aggrandizement and ambition, all buried in the waters of baptism. That's where we were, as St. Paul says, crucified with Christ. It means we give up everything, everything we are and everything we have to Jesus, because God in Christ gives this to us. But in renouncing everything, and we must renounce everything, in this death and dying, that is when we find the hope of life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus says. And not just life, we know, life abundant, life more than we could have dreamed of, life not determined by death or the fear of death, because we've already died. Life lived in hope, in redemption, in grace, in salvation. So we have to be clear about this. The life that we receive back, having been raised out of the waters of baptism into newness of life, it is not the same life that we gave up. In fact, it's not even our life. What does St. Paul say about his being crucified with Christ? He says, it is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is the joy of salvation. We no longer have to live our own lives. Now, for many of us, this is a great freedom. Because for us who have been imprisoned by our own delusions of ourselves, who've been chained by our sins, anguished by our failures, despairing to think that the life that we have, that we have to live has been wrenched beyond the possibility of repair, for us, this is truly good news. We don't have to live the life we wrought for ourselves. We are delivered from ourselves and the lives we thought we were fated to live. And we are given instead Jesus's life to live just as he lives in us. So there are two things that I want us to hear from the Lord Jesus this morning. For some of us here this morning, this is the word we need to hear from Jesus. You are free. You really are. You are free. You are not determined by your past. You're not hopelessly stuck in the hole that you've dug for yourself in, the, in this present moment. And you're not fated to a future of abjection or self-hatred or alienation from God. You are free. Because in taking up the cross and being joined to Christ in his death and losing your life, you have been given to share in the very life of the Son of God. And that is life with hope and a future. It is a life of flourishing and friendship and communion with God. It is a life of blessedness, and it's yours. In fact, you already have it. It's been given to you by God as a gift. And if you're struggling to really believe that, to believe that you're free because you've been given another life to live, then I just want you to contemplate what you're doing this morning when you walk up to this altar. 
Jesus gives you himself fully, completely as your life and salvation. So take and eat. And then there's a word for others of us this morning. It's a question we're provoked by Jesus to consider. And it's as simple as it is strange. It's this. What in us has not yet died? What in us has not yet died? What are we holding on to? Maybe out of distrust that the way of the cross really is the way of life and peace? What are we holding on to? What hopes and aspirations and dreams for ourselves and for our lives have we still been hiding from God just in case his plan doesn't work out? What are we hiding from the reach of grace? What domain of our lives are we still insisting on possessing full sovereignty over? What secret weeds are growing in our hearts and souls that we think we can manage and grow, but we can't? What needs to die? What needs to be lost forever? What needs to die so that we can truly find our lives in Christ? What needs to die so that we can really live? Jesus bids us this morning, even at this altar, come and die. So let us die. Let us die this morning, that in dying we might be born to eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.